0: We live today in such a world of distrust where, you know, we have fake news. If you have Alexa or Google or you're on Facebook, you feel like your information and data is being taken. Anyone can write any story they want now. You don't know what's real and what's not real. People are really on guard. And I think it makes us sell and persuade in a way that is fundamentally crippling to society. And it feels very... Inauthentic. And so the idea of, of the tension between soulful and persuasion to me is all about cutting through all that noise and trying to be a really authentic, purpose-driven, honest person.
1: Hello everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence or people who have a very unique backstage pass, a very unique peek into a very particular world of influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. So here's today's question. Is it possible to persuade soulfully to influence without at least partially resorting to force, manipulation, interruption or volume? And if it is possible, when you really get down to it, to the business of standing out and generating results at scale, is it effective enough in the long run to commit to mastering as a skill? Now, some would probably say right now, rightly or wrongly, that we live in a world where fear drives the majority of persuasion. In the business world, we call that fear by many names. We call it urgency, authority, scarcity, all of which usually mean the same thing and for a long time have informed the majority of the marketing and advertising and and sometimes leadership messages that we receive. But in a world where trust is ever increasingly hard to find, and our ability to tune out the messages and the people we don't want to see is greater than ever, is there another potentially more effective way to stand out? And my guest on today's episode would argue very persuasively that there is. Jason Harris is the CEO of Powerhouse Creative Agency Mechanism, a creative agency that works with brands such as Peloton, HBO, Ben & Jerry's, Dropbox, Under Armour, the list literally goes on and on. He is also the author of The Soulful Art of Persuasion, 11 Habits That Will Make Anyone a Master Influencer. So in my words, it's, it's just pretty much a grassroots guide to influence in a world of distrust. Highly, highly recommended. I read a lot of books. I get sent a lot of books. And this book in particular just completely captured my attention. In it, he draws on the latest in-depth research on trust, influence and habit formation. Because let's face it, nothing works from a knowledge point of view unless you can develop the habits to back it up. And he makes a compelling argument that being persuasive in today's world means rejecting an ethos of quick and instead embracing a commitment to playing the long game. In this conversation, Jason and I dive in and out of, of many topics, including why playing the long game is the key to coming out in front. And why hearing no can sometimes be the best opportunity to stand out. Very counterintuitive, but very true. How to apply a philosophy of never be closing, not always be closing, never be closing, and still win more business in the long run. The art of giving yourself away and the tools not to let it take over your life, while learning to write, own and articulate your unique story is the key to cut through in a cynical age. And the importance of turning to face the strange, I loved this one, loved, loved it, basically why your inner freak, you know the one, the one that you pretend that you don't have most of the time, is perhaps the greatest superpower that you have at your fingertips. Now today's conversation is for anyone trying to work out how to make an impact in a world of diminished trust. And like most common sense, it pretty much applies at every level. From the bottom line of how you communicate in moment-to-moment situations to the top line of what the future of persuasion actually looks like. Especially in a world where daisy methods, and you'll understand more about that after listening, appear on the surface to get the lion's share of attention. Basically the clouds and the dirt of influence. So grab a notepad or a coffee or a protein bar. Yep, I'm still on the F45 challenge. DM me your condolences. And enjoy my interview with the superhuman brain that is Jason Harris. Welcome to the podcast, Jason Harris. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Very excited. Very excited to have you here. Um, I'm going to, I want to kick off with, a question that I've been using recently and it goes in all kinds of weird and wonderful directions. What's the most influential idea that you've heard recently? So, uh, that's a tough
0: question, but, um, I just, what influenced me most recently is I just watched, um, the Oscars, which was on Sunday. So like the the 92nd Oscars, and I um, had not heard of this movie, Jojo Rabbit, and I watched it last night. And that movie – have you seen that movie? I haven't, no. It was incredibly powerful, um, and it was – it's like a drama comedy, and um, the, it won best Best Screenplay, and the person that wrote the screenplay was also the director and also an actor – in the film. And it's a film about, um, the end, the fall of of Nazi Germany and the end of the war told through a, uh, 10 year old boy's eyes, but it's done in a very comedic fashion, but is also super emotional And the way he thread the line between making you laugh, making you cry, uh, the way he shot it, it, it is such a delicate dance and it could have been done uh, in a way that didn't work. And somehow he just threaded the line and it worked. And it, it was influential to me uh, for, to, to think of someone being able to take a wild idea that seems really impossible on paper for it to work, uh, an emotional comedy told through a boy's eyes about uh, Nazi Germany and the slaying of Jews uh done as a comedy that was also made you cry it sounds impossible and that I was influenced by the the power of um this director's imagination to to make it work and it worked really well
1: it, I think you summed it up just perfectly when you said delicate dance that was what well, was coming through while you were talking like that would be like you you would be dancing on that and just for, because there's no guidelines I mean that kind of a task you would be going on gut alone to tell that story
0: yeah it's almost if you mixed uh like steven spielberg if you mix like schindler's list with a wes anderson movie that sounds like an impossible combination but somehow it worked and uh somehow he got it funded and backed and supported and it got to the academy awards and uh that's you know it it was it's amazing that someone's passion and imagination can do that
1: you you almost want to be in that pitch meeting (laughs) yeah exactly. you know to hear how he how he told that story to get the funding to to even attempt it exactly all right well that's a that's another episode to figure that one out totally so I think you know you and I spoke about a week ago prior prior to this um, episode, and I was telling you that the, you know that the book that you wrote the Soulful art of persuasion when i when I read it, I was like i just I literally just wrote in my notes yes in big capitals well that's good it was, it's a good it's a good place to start because there's so much about what you what you talk about and where you come from and your background that gives this argument that influence has changed, that it is changing, that the impact of influence has changed and how we tell it and how we do it. It just, it backed up everything that A, I, I have been thinking, but B, I have also been hoping for. <laughs> yeah. So, and we're going to dive into that a little bit more, so, but I want to start with the word soulful because, you know, I was sat in a, in a room full of lawyers yesterday and I suddenly thought, you know, if I were to bring up soulful persuasion in this room, I could just imagine... The faces that that I would get back. What brought you to that word? Like what? Because coming up with a title for the book is, you know, often a lot of authors would say one of the hardest parts of writing a book. What took you to that word? Or were you already there before you started writing?
0: Um, now I sort of um, got to that, um, which is a, you know, the, the book's broken up into four principles, and the last principle is soulful, which is sort of the the key component. And when I started, I've been in the advertising uh, business for about 20 years, and I, I always read sort of business books or self-help books, always trying to figure out how other people are successful just to always learn, always sort of keep keep, keep myself educated and learning and, and look at other perspectives. And as I read a lot of these books, I just felt like there was something about selling or persuasion that just felt very hollow to me. And it felt like persuasion is such a loaded word and it almost feels like you're trying to get something over on someone. And we live today in such a world of of distrust where you know we have uh, fake news. If you have Alexa or Google or uh, you're on Facebook, you feel like your information and data is being... Being taken, um, anyone can write any story they want now. You don't know what's real and what's not real, and we we people are really on guard. And I think it makes us um, sell and persuade in a way that is, you know, fundamentally crippling to society. And it feels very inauthentic. And so the idea of of the tension between soulful and persuasion, to me, is is all about cutting through all that noise, and trying to be a really authentic, purpose-driven, you know, honest person. And, and soulfulness, to me, comes down to um, two, two components. It's like, it's like mirroring your skill, what you're good at, with a larger purpose, a larger thing you're trying to bring to the world. And if you can add that to any business or personal endeavor, I think it, it you know, hopefully is making the world... A little richer um not in terms of money but in terms of of the world we live in but it is also making you more successful because you're uh, it's easier for people to to trust you it's easier for you to um show people your true character and so that to me the the tension between soulful and persuasion is really at the crux of the book
1: I love, you know, you were saying we're we're living in an age of of distrust. Um, You mentioned Google, you mentioned Facebook. I was noticing the other day that now, you know, with the echo chamber of me, and we're all a little bit more aware that the algorithms feed us pieces of information, pieces of news, stories that agree with us. You know, they're trained to look at what we're searching for and our implicit biases and then feed back to us what we will agree with. And so now there's this layer of distrust, of distrusting your own distrust, if that makes any sense. You know, <laughs> I'm, it's crazy. I'm, I'm in this situation where, uh, you know, I'm trying to, trying to find more out about a topic or a person and I don't trust the results that come back at me. And so then you're trying to dig deeper into ideas you don't agree with to see if you can figure out what you trust and what you don't. It's a quagmire of a, of a lack of trust.
0: It is. It's true. And a lot of it has to do with, um, I think, politics has it plays a big factor in it. I think when you see the success of people that sort of um, ignore, you know, pit sort of an us versus them mentality in the world, which there's so much of now, uh, partisanship, I think it just breeds that, uh, what you're saying, which is, I just want to be comfortable with like-minded people in my own little bubble. And I want to get served up things that I agree with. And I think that, you know, we kind of lose our humanity there when you're not able to be empathetic and see the other side and you don't even attempt to. And I think we're sort of devolving into, into that, unfortunately.
1: And on a, on a practical level, there's no, there's no moving forward. Unless there's curiosity, listening, and some form of cohesiveness, there's, there's exactly. literally no moving forward. Right. I, I read, I read a quote. I think it was in Adweek, and it was about it was about the book, and it, it said, "Harris shows that being persuasive in a culture plagued by deception means rejecting the ethos of the quick and embracing the commitment of putting your truest self forward and playing the long game." Yeah and i know that a big part of that in the work that you do or the things that you speak about is the use of the word character you talk about yeah. character a lot how does character play into persuasion
0: so i think character you know personal character is really a lot of times it's not exactly the substance of what's being said that can change minds it's rather the person that's saying it it's it's how you feel when someone's talking, when you're listening to someone. And I think personal character really helps you be more influential. It helps you with better relationships. I think it makes you you more fulfilled. And I think, um, you know, to me, to me, character um, is really about a set of values and a set of rules that become habitual for you it's it's what it's it's what you follow and what you believe in and that really makes up your character over time and um yeah that that to me is is personal character and i think it's really hard um at different parts of your life and personally and professionally to sort of bury bury that character to take either the easy way out or to avoid confrontation or to get ahead because you know that that's what the person wants, but true character is really believing in, you know, having a belief system, sticking to it, and conveying that uh, to other people. That, to me, is is what builds character.
1: And you said there was a set of rules to yeah to is it to building character to bringing your character to the forefront.
0: I think it's it's a it's a set of rules uh, and be, it's like a belief system that develops your character, which is really, really who you are. And that's what I tried to outline in the book are at least my principles or my, my uh, belief system that creates the, my character, what I think is good for uh, persuasion and selling today.
1: Can you go a little bit further into what those what those rules are?
0: Yeah, sure. So they really break down into and, and you know, in the book, I sort of have 11, um, habits and habits to me are, 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 they can be learned behavior, but habits are something that you, um, do enough, you focus on and you repeat so that they become second nature to you and they become habitual. And I have sort of, I break it down into 11 of them, but they're all wrapped under four basic, uh, principles that I believe in. And one Um, I'll, I'll go through them really quick, but one is really this idea of being original and it's that you are, when, when you're an original, you understand, and when you meet an original person, you get a sense that they're coming from an authentic and honest place that they're really putting their true selves forward. And a lot of other, um, business books or old, uh, belief systems and selling, selling books or about mirror and matching. You know, it's about trying to um, act like whoever your target is or whoever you're trying to persuade. And to me, origin, being original is always about putting your true self out there, whatever that may be, and letting people see that side of you. And I think that opens people up, makes people comfortable, makes people vulnerable. So the first one's about being original. The second one is being a generous person. And that's about giving habitually without expecting anything in return. That generous people, and it can be time, it can be uh, advice, it can be counsel, it can be sometimes even stuff. But it's it's thinking about other people and acting and living in a generous manner. And then the third is, is empath- empathetic, which we sort of touched on, but it's really about being naturally curious about other people and looking at emphasizing our commonalities our common humanity not our differences or how we where we disagree but where we can intersect and then the last one of those principles is soulful which is um, trying to have a connection to things that are weightier than just you know money or pleasure or status uh, but something bigger that a bigger goal that you can aim for so those are my four, Principles: original, generous, empathetic, and soulful. That, when practiced, make up, um, I think, a, a, char- a person, a character that characteristics rather that can um, be successful in in your in personal and professional fulfillment.
1: Just suddenly listening to you hit me how similar those traits are to a persuasive individual to a persuasive brand.
0: Yeah, so very similar, and and I really got that from uh, advertising. Cause if you're in the advertising business and you're building brands, you're trying to persuade your, you know, I run a, I run a company. You're trying to persuade people, uh, to follow your lead. You're trying to persuade and sell to clients. You then launch what you think the brand should represent. And you're trying to persuade and sell consumers to believe in this brand or this product. And so it is very similar to personal characteristics and brand characteristics because brands today uh, really need to act more human. They need to have human characteristics to be successful. They can't just be this sort of uh, logo behind a wall. You really have to connect with people by being more human as a brand and following those. I think it's a really great connection you made following those principles uh, to, can apply to brands as well as people,
1: and also that shift away from perfection. And we're going to get more into those those four kind of key pillars that you talked about. But I think it's important to to go here for a second that one of the main blockers to all of the things that you've just talked about, and we're going to continue talking about, is this word perfection. You know, the the idea that a perfect brand is um, is shiny, it's polished, it's irreproachable, it's um, you know it's highly produced and also that the idea that the most influential person is also polished highly produced you know look schmick straight tie almost the opposite of of what you've been talking about there which is you know the the original is standing out how do you in both your you work on your own character and also in the work on the characters of the brands that you work on some of the biggest brands on the planet how do you get around that kind of perfection myth?
0: Well, I think, you know, one, one way that you get around that perfection myth is trying to um, create community behind the brands and letting those brand stories from the members or the audience be part of the story that you're telling. That helps humanize uh, the brand, but us also being being able to apologize when you make a mistake, being able to say, uh, hey, we got that wrong, not trying to, you know, there's so much happening, especially here in the States, that that I think Trump has given a lot of the uh, green light to, which is never admit you're wrong, plow forward at all costs, uh, you know, never back down. And I think following that for a brand is 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 deadly. You have to be able to, uh, as a brand, not strive for perfection. You can strive for greatness, but not perfection. And you have to be vulnerable. You have to say when, you know, we made a, a flawed product or we're contributing to, um, you know, the destruction of, of, uh, you know, the, the Earth's climate and we're going to fix that. You have to be able to be vulnerable, to be human and trying to be perfect. Consumers aren't going to buy it and they're going to sniff it out and you know you're going to lose a lot of a brand love that way
1: i had that conversation with somebody recently about one of the greatest things that stands in the way of people who are looking to stand up and share their expertise and be original is this idea that they might get something wrong they might say something wrong and the conversation we had is that actually when you think about it that's your greatest opportunity for impact you can't make much of an impact when you're right and when everything's going well, you know the, your level of impact is is kind of limited, but when something goes wrong or when you are wrong or have been wrong the the level at which you can make an impact just rises exponentially as to how Absolutely. you handle that
0: amen and I think in the in the book the the what what people really respond to are I write about a lot of Lessons I learned through mistakes and failure, and that honesty shows. You know, while I might be a um, an a, expert or uh, or some level of mastering the my my craft or my industry, that doesn't mean I'm there's no perfection here. There's mistakes uh, that I've made in the past. There's mistakes I'll make in the future. But you have to be able to uh, talk about those and you know show uh i call it showing some some psychic skin you know getting showing where you can make a mistake or be vulnerable and and the takeaway and and the lesson behind it i think that those are the most powerful uh forms of connection
1: i love that phrase show some psychic skin (laughs) yeah it's an incredible phrase i've what's i want to i want to go into one of the one of the many kind of key takeaways from the book for me which was never be closing the philosophy of never be closing which you know debunks the idea of you know the, the traditional abc of closing and also kind of flies in the face of well you know the whole idea of sales is that i need to get this i need to get this shit signed you know i need to get this done Talk to me about that because you're a business owner. I mean, it's not as if you don't understand skin in the game, be it psychic or physical. Talk to me about yeah. the philosophy.
0: Yeah, that, that philosophy, you know, was it certainly didn't start out that way. It was, it was developed over time. But, you you know, in, the, in any industry, we're all persuading whatever it is, whatever our craft is, we need customers and clients. Everyone, everyone needs that, that sort of uh, baseline. And that mantra of always be closing, it just always kind of rubbed me the wrong way because the idea behind that is really at all costs, you need to get you know the, the thing signed. You need to get the eyes dotted and get that signature and book the money. And I think that short-term transactional thinking, while it might help you quarter to quarter in a business, this idea of um, playing the long game and not thinking about, closing a sale, but thinking of every touch point is a relationship. And if you can let those relationships know that it's a marathon and know that if you don't, don't push too hard, if you don't make that sale, but if you keep that relationship or if you're doing any kind of pitch in any business, you've studied to try to get the thing signed. If you, if you get a no, it doesn't mean that the relationship's over and you have to move on. Yes, you go try to sell elsewhere also, but you also keep that relationship that you've invested time in going. And eventually, you hope that that playing the long game will come back to you, whether through a referral, whether through business later on. But uh, I used to go by, you know, pitch to one person, pitch to another person, pitch to another person. And I'd let all those relationships and uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't keep in touch. I wouldn't follow up with those relationships. But having that mentality of never be closing, and whatever happens in this particular moment, whether it's win or lose, I'm going to win, win that relationship over time, and I'm going to stay with that relationship because other doors will open and other things will happen. And it's really a mental shift um, that i I sort of had halfway through starting my, my advertising agency that's really proved well. And, um, the, the idea of, of long playing the long game, long-term thinking and not transactional thinking really has made all the difference. So my mantra is always never be closing instead of always be closing.
1: And it, it goes back to what we were talking about before, which is when stuff goes wrong, IE you don't win this particular pitch. That's your biggest opportunity to make an impact because who, when they've had to choose between three suppliers or three companies, Who's ever really felt an ongoing connection with the ones that you didn't choose? That would stand out. That would make a massive impact. But nobody ever does it. No one even stays in touch with the businesses that they don't win. As you said, when you put all that research and effort into it, can you give me an example just for those who are, you know, suddenly sat there thinking, oh my goodness, I have a, a massive bucket of clients that I'm not in touch with that I should be right now me an example of one where you didn't win but you played the long game
0: okay sure yeah so one of our current clients is um charles schwab you know they're you know you know charles schwab yes. i'm sure okay so um we uh had done a couple projects for them uh early days we they, we've been their agency of record now for uh, about six years But early on, we did a couple of projects for them. They wanted to hire one agency. We were smaller at the time, and we didn't make it into the pitch to be the agency of record for their business. And so it would be easy to say, well, we did a good job on these pitches. You know, screw them. They uh, didn't give us a look and write them off. But instead what we did is we waited two years. We stayed in touch with these clients. We would send them articles about the financial industry that we thought they would like. We would come up with proactive ideas and stay on them. And we just really never, we never took no uh, for for like a final answer. We took it as no for right now. We're going to grow a little bit. We're going to tell them that we know about their business. And then at some point, they're going to want to make a change, and we're going to be there. And so that's an example of just, staying in touch and, and now we've been with them uh, for for five or six years as their lead agency and that's just an example of of sticking with it and playing the long game. And when they first came to us after they were, you know, they had an agency and they were interested in, in an idea we pitched, we really did that that idea that we had pitched them for really a cost just to prove ourselves. And once we proved ourselves and they got sort of fed up with their, their current agency. They just awarded us the business without a pitch. And that's just, I have many examples like that. But in the old way of thinking, I would have just been pissed off and walked away and then gone after a new piece of business. Instead, we just stuck out, played the long game, and it came back to us. And so literally, I have dozens of those types of, of uh, stories. And it's, it's a different way of thinking that, Anyone can apply. And you can apply it to personal relationships as well as business relationships.
1: Just to get really practical on that quickly, do you literally diarize that? And the reason I ask is because I've, for years, and people who listen to the podcast regularly will will have heard me talk about it before, I've had a discipline in my diary where for an hour every Monday, I just call it radar. It just says radar in my diary. And it's an hour and I (laughs) sit down and, you know, I, I read things I wouldn't usually read. I watch things I wouldn't usually watch. And I just keep my radar open as to who in my network might find this useful. Who can I contribute to? Who can I reach out to? And that discipline has probably stood me in better stead than any other business discipline that I have. Is that something that you, that you have a consistency around or do you just wait for it to kind of bubble up such as such might find that interesting?
0: Uh, well, I mean, the fact that you have that discipline naturally is, amazing i had it's something i had to really uh think about and craft and you know talk about it in the book but that to me is this idea of never let relationships drop to zero and i have a real strict discipline around it which is every day i take 20 minutes I'm not as I'm not as um sort of free form with it as you are which is It's really just because I love
1: putting an hour aside to have a cup of coffee so that you know <laughs> Yeah okay well
0: there you go so I don't I don't look at it as uh what what's interesting to me that I can then send something to I actually do it by person so I have a 20 minute block 5 5 days a week where I will actually put someone's name in my calendar on the Sunday before that week ahead That are sort of on my list of of relationships and contacts. And for that 20 minutes, I'll think about that person. I'll research something. I'll think about either a movie, something related to business, an area that I know of is interest to them, and I'll I'll reach out to them in the same way you do. I just do it less by what I see out there, who would be who I can apply it to. I do it more by a person a day. And Um, that's taken me just like you, that's really made a significant, uh, difference in my business because I, I don't let those relationships drop to zero. I don't reach out to someone just when I think they might have something that's good for me. I keep those relationships going over time and, um, you, you don't lose relationships that way. And you're not asking for something. You're, you're just trying to make sure you stay in touch with that relationship.
1: Alright, well that's if if nothing else from from this conversation, if I'd say that was a, a piece of gold that could make a massive difference to to someone's influence in business. So I'm not gonna press stop here, but I could. On on that alone <laughs> I could. Um, oh, awesome. So you know, you're you're essentially you know, you're talking about this this premise of of giving yourself away, becoming habitually generous, which is another one of the, the pillars in your book. Giving something away at every every interaction again, is that have you find have you found that that works in a kind of a real- time practical without you know overstretching yourself to the point where you're constantly giving yourself away and you have nothing left for the core activity of your business?
0: Yeah, so you know my philosophy before I, I sort of developed this muscle was much more. I'm 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 busy I don't have time and my first reaction was always to say no whenever someone reached out for advice or counsel or whatever it might be or an email and I I I realized that um, that was doing a disservice to the relationships uh, that I have and so the most valuable gift we have to give someone is time and if by being a generous person and it's it's not easy. Like I make it sound super easy, but it's it's hard to be disciplined. But if you have a relationship with someone, or someone has the, um, you know, chutzpah to reach out to you, even though they they might be you know nervous or worried or think they won't hear back, I think you at least owe it to that that person to respond. Um, give them give them some time give them some counsel and you might not have, might not be able to do it right away, but you might be able to do it on a Sunday when you're killing two hours on the couch. And so I always think about, you know, answering everyone, giving people my time, people at at the company, if if they need advice, you know, I've open door policy. Um, So just this idea of uh, trying to switch to saying yes and being a generous person really makes you a way more happier, fulfilled, positive person. And it sort of takes the stress away of, you know, I don't have time for that. That's annoying. I can't get back to that person. And I'm not saying I do that with everyone or every sales call or every little thing. But the, the people that either are, I'm connected with that ask for something or someone reached out to me uh, for some advice, I really try to be generous with my time and figure out a way to make it work. And then is generosity also, if I'm thinking of someone or whenever I buy a book, for example, that I like, I'll, I'll always buy two of them and I'll think about um, as I read it, who's a person I can give this book to? Or I do that with uh, vinyl records as well. I always buy two and I think who's someone that would really appreciate that? Because the, the impact you make on a person by, by having them know that you're thinking about them and you're giving Something to them without expecting something back is super powerful for the person, but but more so for yourself because it just creates this generous mindset and this way of going into the world uh, through through generosity, and and that's been useful for me in business and and professional and and personally.
1: I can't remember the last time someone gave me a vinyl record.
0: Oh uh, yeah, well it sounds like you're going to get one. <laughs> Now I have to guess what kind of music you like.
1: All right, it's on. It's on. All right. Um, talk to me about storytelling, because you know we both we both know, and it's a common theme in this podcast that one of the most persuasive abilities, skills that we can master is the ability to to be able to storytell. And you built an entire business and a career, you know, for brands such as Peloton, Fiverr, HBO, around your your ability to storytell in a persuasive way. What what have you learnt about storytelling over the years of, of doing the work that you do?
0: Well, I think, you know, we come at it from a, uh, as an agency, we come at it from a perspective that um, in general, people hate advertising. You know, when you're watching something online, you're not dying for it to be interrupted by a pop-up ad. You're not... Naturally, dying to see an ad on you know TV or wherever you wherever you might be, um, but if you can think about what that brand, what the brand's value is, what the soul and heart of that brand is, and wrap it in an interesting, compelling story, then all of a sudden you're changing it from um, advertising a product or service into a story that people may be attracted to or may be interested in. So I always think about, you know, if there was, if, if it was called the storytelling industry, I think that would probably be better for us. But I just always think about, um, and everyone at the company really tries to think about the story we're trying to, to tell and not the product or service we're trying to get people to buy. And I think it's, it's just thinking about storytelling in that way that, you know, hopefully makes us, a little bit different and it makes our work work for our clients
1: are there any themes around storytelling you know from in terms of the science of storytelling that you know thematically every compelling story contains these kind of core themes is that is that true or is that just an oversimplification
0: um that's a good question i think it's a little bit of a oversimplification but i think the best stories are are um you know, original in some way, they're simple to grasp and they're consistent over time. So it's less that, you know, stories have to be funny or emotional or six seconds in you have to do X, Y, and Z, but it's more that, uh, the story has to be simple so that you get it. It has to be original. So it feels like something that hasn't been done before and then consistency, especially with brands, is really, really important. Figuring out once you've landed that story how to keep that story going over time and not always changing what your story is every six months or every year or when a new chief marketing officer comes in, they disrupt all the equity that's been built. Consistency in storytelling is really important. But I don't really have um, a story has to follow X, Y, and Z Uh I don't I don't I don't really buy into that it's much more about uh sort of those three factors original simple and uh consistent I
1: I want to flip that storytelling um subject for a second because we're talking at brand level and we're going to keep going between brand level and individual backwards and forwards because you know everything that works at a brand level I think also applies to the individual at least that's my that's my theory so talk to me about pulling out your own story so those three principles you know original, simple, and consistent, do they also apply when it when it comes to trying to figure out your own story as a salesperson, as an entrepreneur so that you can stand out from the crowd and tell a really compelling story about who you are and what you do
0: Yeah, definitely. I think that's the same if you're building your own personal brand or if you're building a brand um, I think it's the it's the same. I think when you make it hard for people to a know what you do or what you stand for or your way in, uh, people get lost very quickly, especially in the, you know, ADD world we live in. And then I think it's your, um, need to stand out in some way and talk about what makes you unique and different. And then I think you just have to repeat that and tell that story in new and interesting ways, but always keep that story the same.
1: Do you have any guidance to someone who sat there, either A, thinking, I don't think I have a story, or B, thinking I have a story, but I just, I have no idea how to pull it out of myself in a compelling way. Do you have any advice to those people who are just starting on that road?
0: Yeah, I think they, um, whatever industry they're in, whatever sort of vertical they see themselves in, I think they know innately what, if they were on the other side of the table why would they hire them? What makes them unique? Why would people be attracted to them? And they really have to highlight that point of difference and really crystallize it and hone in on it and think about it. And if they don't have one, then maybe they need to formulate a one that they would strive for so that they can start saying that that's their uniqueness or their point of difference, that they can tell a story. And then as they do that more and more over time, it will become Uh, the story and so I think that you you can't stand out in a crowd if you're doing the same thing as everyone else so you really have to think about that uniqueness that point of difference I think that's it all starts there
1: one of the concepts that you talk about in the book which again was my one that I feel like writing on a post-it note and just putting on my office wall which was turn and face the strange Yep. talk to me about turn and face the strange
0: so that that notion, well, I'm a big David Bowie fan, and so that idea of diving into really who you are and really understanding who you are and so you know this is a I'll give you like the quick sort of where I glean this from, and it's a it's a line from a from a Bowie song um changes, but Bowie was. He started out as a uh, actually his first job was in advertising ironically enough, but he started out as a cutting albums that were uh, Bowie trying to sound like Bob Dylan because that was that's what was popular at the time and none of those albums sold at all and then he went he turned and faced the strange and he went to uh, a monastery he started a recording arts experimental lab. He studied mime. I don't know what the hell mime does for you, but he really uh, leaned into his quirks to discover really who he was. And then he, he was reborn as a David Bowie we know uh, and loved. And he really became original by going off and finding out really who he was. And when he did that, that's when he became one of the best... Rep- selling recording artists of, the, of his time, when he tried to just do the whatever everyone else was doing that was popular, he, he totally floundered and we never would have heard of him. And so that lesson to me, I think, can apply to anyone in any um, career to really turn and face the strange about what makes them unique and really understanding really who they are. Because when you are, are leaning into who you are, if you know who you are first and then you can tell people about your values and your beliefs and how you approach things differently. uh, That's, that's, that's what sells. That's what makes you successful. And until you do that, you're just going to be sort of in a, in an average place with a lot of other people.
1: Have you seen the, the queen? I was about to say documentary. It's not a documentary, the queen movie.
0: Oh yeah. It was awesome. Yeah.
1: And it reminded me of that moment. I don't know if you remember that moment when they're pitching Bohemian Rhapsody to, to the record company exec.
0: Yeah, I remember that.
1: Yeah, and you know they could have pulled back from that. It was too strange. It was too. It was too on the edge. Or they could do what they did, which was stomp out of the room and and say they were doing it, or nothing. But having the courage to lean into the things that feel a little bit different, and and that also I think applies to having the courage sometimes to lean into things that feel uncomfortable, um, that might not necessarily sit sit comfortably or be, or be easy to talk about. And one of the, the things that I, that I love about your work is the work that you did on the, it's on us campaign. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that campaign and, and what you learned about everything that we're talking about right now through working on that?
0: It's, it's, uh, it's ironic because we had done some work with, um, uh, Unilever brand called Axe and back when we had done that work it was all about which is work you wouldn't do today it was you know very much like you spray the axon and the women come uh flocking to you it's really for targeted teenage boys and <laughs> that's
1: a really easy sell for teenage boys
0: it is and so uh when obama and biden wanted to create a campaign to combat sexual assaults on college campuses which Uh, is is one one in five women in their first or second year are sexually assaulted. So 20%, it's super ridiculously high. They reached out to us um, to help them create a campaign because if we can talk to men in a certain way about attracting women, maybe we could also talk to men about not being bystanders and using some of those same techniques we would use to sell a product to sell this idea of, stepping in and, and thwarting sexual assaults when they see them, and not be uh, silent bystanders, but to really be part of the solution. So when we approached that as an outside agency, outside of Washington, D.C. that works on brands, we approached it as if we were building a brand. We didn't approach it as, let's do a PSA uh, telling guys not to commit assaults. Let's approach it as this idea of, we're going to build a brand, we create a really cool logo, the It's On Us logo and the mark. And we created it as something that people would want to put on a T-shirt, they'd want to be part of, they f- would feel empowered, uh, they would feel like it was relevant to them. And we really created it as, hey, this is on all of us to make a difference and you need to be responsible, not just talking to the, you know the, 5% of men that commit those assaults, but talk to the other 95% of men about preventing them and create this brand that people would want to be associated with. And we approached it as an outside agency with, Hey, we're launching a new brand. And, you know, that campaign has been running for six years. There's chapters at 500 uh, universities and colleges uh, all across the the country. It's created a lot of blocked, a lot of legislation. Um, We've, you know, we've done really a lot with that campaign, but it all started with, this simple insight of making everybody responsible and then building it as a brand people want to be associated with, not as something people don't want to talk about. And, you know, that has been a very pivotal um, part of my work and part of our agency's work that really does make us feel soulful. Like we can use our advertising powers, not just to build brands and sell products, but we can use our advertising powers to cause social change. Uh, so it was really really a pivotal um, moment in in uh, the advertising and in my history
1: what's what 's so powerful about that is it 's giving voice to the to the ninety five percent of men as you've said that have, haven 't or wouldn 't haven 't had an experience of of the crime itself, but who often feel like they don 't have a voice or they don 't have a, a platform with which to join the conversation. They almost have to stand in the background and watch the conversation.
0: Or or they or they feel like they have to protect their friend and act like it didn't happen, uh, which is really horrible because there you have to make it feel like a movement. You have to make it feel like a community, not they're going to be out there on their own, ostracized by their, you know, frat bros and uh, not 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 putting their guy friends first. You have to flip it. You have to flip it and make it. No, you're in this group. You're not going to be in that, that other minority.
1: And you, you know, part of creating that was you, um, I think, launched or was part of the launch of the Creative Alliance, which is a group of companies dedicated to donating time and resources to create campaigns that change the world for the better. And that's not a usual, you know, going back to, you know, this the soulful art of persuasion, that's not a usual thing. companies collaborating to contribute to a larger conversation companies who would usually potentially be competitors how did that come about was that an idea you'd always had did something spark it
0: uh not at all the success of the it's on us campaign sort of created a lot of nonprofits reaching out to us uh to do help to do work with them um because that campaign was successful and as, as you know, you, you, know you, you founded a business and you know how that, that goes. There's only so many uh, free pro bono projects you can do even no matter how true your heart is. And so the idea was really pragmatic was, well, there's a lot of good causes out there that advertising agencies can use their, their skills to help create change, but we can't take them all on. We need friends and allies. So we created the Creative Alliance, which has 100 companies in it today. And when um, a nonprofit or some some type of um, of of uh, culture change is needed, we tap into one of our agencies in the network to take it on. And that way, we can we have 100 companies working towards social change instead of one. And that's been uh, from a business pragmatic business point needed, but also it allows other agencies to get that experience of uh, using the same skills to create change.
1: And it's worth noting that that's not the easiest thing to do to to get comp- natural competitors to collaborate on a project, and that takes incredible persuasion persuasive skills just by itself.
0: Yeah, we had this mantra that was. Knives down, hearts out, because in in the av- and like a lot of industries, it's, it is like a knife fight because you're competing for the same pieces of business. And we we sort of had to level set and say, in this in this sort of function, in this collective, we don't have any knives. You know, we just we're working with our hearts. But then when we go pitch the next Google project, then we can pick our knives back up.
1: <laughs> but for this, it's like for a this, ceasefire. It's a
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. But for this group, when we're together here, there's no it's it's all cooperation, not competitiveness.
1: I one of the one of the final things I wanted to talk to you about is I don't think I don't think we can talk about or I can talk about this topic without, you know, touching on the difference between positive persuasion, which is everything that you know we've attempted to talk about today. And negative persuasion, which is you know fear, volume, and interruption based, and I find yeah. you know I was doing my research for this conversation, I find that that in my heart is a is a difficult case to make at the moment because everything that seems to catch attention, everything that seems to be getting the lion's share of, of traction at the moment is you know outrage drama fear based as we as we 've talked about you know politics, headlines, clickbait. How do you, this is a big question, but how do you feel about the future of character-based or soulful-based persuasion in the climate that we're in right now?
0: Um, I feel I feel optimistic, but um, I definitely feel like it's very easy to see the power and success because negative persuasion and fear-based sort of ideology can be just as powerful as positive persuasion, and I think... You know, people have to decide they can both both be useful and both be successful, but you have to decide at the end of the day, you know, how you want to live, how you what your legacy is and how you want to go about the world. And, you know, more people, if given the choice, I believe would want to be positively influential and positively persuasive. And that's just our natural human makeup. Uh, But there's no doubt that there's a lot of negative persuasion that can be as, as successful. There's a, uh, I always, this is like my favorite example of negative persuasion, but in 1964, which I know was a long time ago, there was um, in the United States presidential election, Lyndon Johnson did this ad called Daisy, which it only aired once, but it was considered to be sort of the biggest factor in his, landside victory over Barry Goldwater. And it was basically this ad that had a, a girl picking daisies in a field and then a nuclear bomb went off and the, the, the copy was basically, uh, if you don't vote, if you don't vote for Lyndon Johnson, there's going to be a nuclear war. And so (laughs) that's a great example of negative persuasion and advertising that could be super effective. Um, but I don't subscribe to that uh, type of um, fear-mongering.
1: But you can, I mean, my, my my eyes just kind of opened an additional inch when you were talking about that campaign. But, you know, stepping back from what's right or wrong or, you know, the onus being on the storytellers to tell the most ethical, long-term, character-based stories, stepping back from that a second into what we can do as individuals or as consumers and... You know that those kind of campaigns get cut through because you know they're fear-based, they're impactful, they speak to all the things that we want to protect most in our lives: our loved ones, our families, our country, our community. Is is the onus on us? Is the and it's another question that's in my head a lot at the moment. Is the onus on us as a culture to start training ourselves to recognise the difference? To start training ourselves to go okay that was playing that particular ad that particular headline is really playing to that fear drama outrage part of me that often leads me to not dig hard into the facts and so I'm going to use it as a reminder to dig hard into these facts because obviously someone's trying to get me to skip over the facts of this conversation by just going straight to the fearful part of my mind are we able to do that it's a very long convoluted question I know but are we able to train ourselves to do that is it possible?
0: I think it is possible. I think it takes awareness and discipline, but I think uh, I certainly think it's possible. I mean, I I try to focus on that. I try to practice that, um, but it's it's not easy. It's not easy when you see success happen the other way. Um, but again, if if we're thinking about the long term, if we're trying to look at the long game. Um, what's more rewarding in the end I think that's what you have to think about
1: I want to finish with the, a question around the one piece of advice let's just go back to being you know, super practical what's the one piece of advice you would give someone they on their way to work today and their aim is to be more persuasive in their day with their interactions and with the customers they're hoping to sign if they do one thing today what would it be?
0: I have a whole sort of notion about the importance of respect and there's this Harvard business study done with 10,000 employees and they said more than money, more than time, more than title, the number one thing that motivated them was respect. And I think the mindset to think about is how to respect Everyone that you come in contact with, and that shift that mindset um, I think will make a massive impact in whoever's listening and um, respect over everything is something I always try to think about, and it's a mindset that will make you really more persuasive and more successful
1: well thank you thank you so much for your time. really appreciate your time and, and everything you've shared and thank you for the book it was. An incredible contribution.
0: Thank you for having me on. It was really fun.
1: Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up on notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership. When it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, JulieMasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in ten years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it keep it share it juice it for all it is worth i hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business thank you always to our producer co-founder and the main brain i'm not joking behind the inside influence podcast lauren kelly in the words of jerry mcguire you complete me and if you did enjoy the show then we would love you to share this podcast and Leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.